Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week we have a very special episode because I have my friend and colleague Liam Billingham on the pod. He also produces Lit Up. He's been on here before. And back by popular demand, he is here. (laughs) Popular demand. It's truly. Everyone's been clamoring to have me back. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Liam is in LA and I am in New York. And we often. So Liam is often the silent person on all of the lit up interviews. But he is a huge part of this show. And he has a big job doing other things too. So he is the senior producer of podcasts at Sugar 23, where we both work. He's also the host of several podcasts, but the one that's kind of hit the charts at the moment is called Die Hard on a Blank. And Liam, give us in a nutshell, what is it about? Someone may have listened to the episode we shared recently. First of all, thank you. My favorite part of my job is producing Lit Up, and that's a true story. But Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast that explores the influence of Die Hard on action movie cinema, one action movie at a time. So basically, Die Hard comes out, it has a huge impact on action movies. It changes the game. Gone is necessarily the muscle-bound Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger's of the world. And it is like a regular guy who's just in LA to visit his wife when terrorists take over a building. And it was so successful and quite frankly, so critically loved and is considered by many people to be the greatest action movie of all time. And it spawned a subsequent genre of blight, basically what's known as Die Hard on a Blank. So the best example would be Speed is Die Hard on a Bus, or Cliffhanger is Die Hard on a Mountain. So there's like, according to my co-host Phil's count, 170 movies with the admittedly loose definition that this could be Die Hard on a whatever the case might be. And we are going through and covering those one movie at a time. So by the time this comes out, our last episode would be on the film Striking Distance, which is a kind of like Die Hard and a serial killer thriller sort of movie. It stars Bruce Willis, which is partially why we decided to cover it. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the the thesis statement of the show is that we take action movies very, very seriously and try to figure out what, what they're about, both in terms of the story and the themes and also how they relate to Die Hard and, and the impact that Die Hard had on the genre of action movies. So you can imagine that Liam and I come at entertainment from two very different vantage points. I uh, Liam's often like, have you watched that show? And I'm like, what are you talking about, Liam? But, That's true. <laughs> but we love. We, I also love books. I'm a big book guy. And this, this show has enriched my... I read more interesting books because I'm the producer on this podcast than I ever did before. So I have you to thank for that. Well, my pleasure, my pleasure. So wait, we also, you're also the executive producer on a pretty big podcast at the moment, Time Person of the Week as well. So, you know, Liam and I, before we record sessions with our guests, you know, have a gossip and catch up pretty much before or afterwards. So I hear everything that's going on. Some si- sometimes I get to suggest guests for that podcast too. But the You're reason an invaluable why... resource because you know everybody. It's so great. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Well, so we decided to do this episode as kind of an end of summer roundup to see, you know, I can share a little about what I've been reading and the themes I've been following, but also Liam is going to talk about what he's been watching, what he's also been reading, And we just thought we'd just capture how we usually 
kind of just catch up ourselves. It's a gab so, session. It's that's a gab right. Session. That's yeah. it. So that'll be fun. I mean, who's going to start? Angela, why don't you start? Because you have a big trip coming up, right? Yes. We're recording this. You're going to be on vacation when it comes out, I think, or maybe just back. And I've, I know you, you are preparing to go on a trip and probably reading some literature connected to that trip. So what, tell, why don't you tell me what you're reading? I will, I will. So I'm about to go to Cornwall, England, to go walking along the cliffside <sighs> villages. And this is a vacation where everyone else is going to Greek islands or Nantucket, all these places to capture the end of summer. I have had to buy a new raincoat for my vacation because walking in England at this time of year probably means very chilly weather, wore mm-hmm. lots of wet socks and woolens, and I cannot wait. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. So, so a book that Anthony, my fiancé, gave me was a British book called The Bell by Iris Murdoch. And I haven't read any of her books, and she's written, I think, maybe 50. Mm -hmm. She's a prolific writer. And this one is set in the countryside of England, outside an abbey in a a, a burgeoning, I always get that word wrong, in in a small community that's being established outside of a religious order what's going on inside the abbey is very private and mysterious and there's a a story about this place of a bell the big church bell falling into the river somehow huh. and on that very night there was a murder or a, a death Whoa. so they're kind of dredging this bell up and a lot of things are going to happen but what's so like a signature of Iris Murdoch is kind of the latent sexuality that's mm. written into her, into nature, and we kind of get this sense of foreboding. She's she described almost like these leaves as spread eagled, you know, when we're talking about a young nun that's about to go into the abbey. So all along the way, you're trying to work out who's going to end up having a you know, frolic with whom at some point in the book or what transgressions will happen. So it's quite heightened and really interesting. So have you ever seen the movie Picnic at Hanging Rock from Australia, the Peter Weir movie? Liam, what a question. Of course. I figured you have, but it makes me think of that, the kind of like, like, a mystery at well it's a girls school right but uh, yeah they're like kind of like yearning as or as existential dread kind of thing that sounds very much like picnic at hanging rock of course you've seen that movie oh and that movie if anyone hasn't seen it inspired has inspired so much aussie fashion you know there's always kind of a picnic at hanging rock moment in a Zimmerman, you know, story huh. or things like that. And I, it may have been adapted from a book. I ought to know that. I think it, I think it, I think you're absolutely right. Well, we can find that out. What's the name of the Iris Murdoch book again for, for the for folks listening, if they want to read it? Sure. It's called The Bell. The Bell. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. The Bell from 1958. I'm going to read this. It sounds great. She's have you started a master it? at character studies. Mm. Sometimes I find, you know, in books these days, it's a bit like Charles Dickens or, you know, Jane Austen. You can read just one paragraph introducing a character and you hear about the twitch of their moustache or the shape of their lip. Mm. And you already know what kind of person they're trying to make you believe this character is. It's like a gesture. It's like a gesture or something that defines the cat. The twirling of the mustache. Yeah, totally. I love that. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what I'm reading to prepare for this trip. And I'll take it with me because I have to keep reading. And I'm going to take another book. That's why I mentioned Dickens because Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver is based upon... Dickens as David Copperfield, but it's set in the mountains of Southern Appalachia. Oh. So it's taking a young boy, you know, who's a kid to a single mom and 
going into that story, but apparently he's such a, a character that you just fall in love with this kind of wafy, wafy boy who has to survive. So they're going to be my vacation reads. I, I This is ridiculous, but when you say wafy, I picture like Timothy Chalamet as the main character of this of this book, kind of like a tiny little boy. Picnic and Hanging Rock is a book. It was written in 1967, and the movie came out in 1975. And I've not seen it, but there was a, a TV version that came out a few years ago. Um, Ooh, I I'd like not, to read not that seen. and see it. Yeah, I saw that movie like at a very young age, and it I found it very, very troubling. Do you feel like this kind of fiction, the like existential, it's a, a kind of classic stuff, Iris Murdoch is like not, I feel like I don't read as much of it as I used to, but I wonder if that's me reading more nonfiction now as an adult than I used to. I, I think, like I read, yeah. and I don't want to generalize, but I think a lot of men read a lot more nonfiction than than necessarily women might. People will probably mm -hmm. scream at me and say that's totally, you know, stereotypical. But I think maybe as adults, I find novels harder to get into mm -hmm. sometimes and that a nonfiction you can kind of pick up and put down a bit more easily. Yeah, I think that's true. The stakes are lower. Like you're not as uh, maybe emo not emotionally engaged, but like like I just finished reading this book for the podcast called Last Action Heroes, which is about Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and it's a really entertaining read, but it's not a demanding read. So there I definitely put it down the by the time this episode comes out, I think the author of that book will have been on Die Hard on a Blank. So I can just say I'm reading it because he's going to be a guest on the show. And I put it down for a couple weeks because I wanted it to be fresher for when we record with him. And I didn't feel I didn't feel like I had to start the book over again, if that makes sense. I was able to jump in in like chapter four or whatever the case might have been. No, I think a novel is so well read if you have hours and hours to really dive in, mm -hmm. I find if I put, you know, right now I'm reading a manuscript and I've given it a few days off and sometimes you can just forget about a novel and go, do I even want to go back in? Maybe it's sometimes easier to leave the thread, but maybe the best books, you just have to keep going. Well, I'm also curious because you read for like a living, right? Part of your job is to read books and like, because you have to think about reading a manuscript and thinking about like, is this a book I'd want to publish or get involved with? Or I have to interview an author, like is reading sometimes more of a chore. And by extension is the fact that you get to read Iris Murdoch on holiday, like such a relief. I, yes, yes. The relief yeah. of just picking a, a novel from a deceased author, you know, you couldn't even try to interview is a relief. Mm -hmm. I also think, it's great to read books that have stood the test of time. So time curates for you in a mm -hmm. way. So there's, and I think Anthony bought this book because it was a bookstore recommendation and they're so powerful, you know, that, that wall of books oh, with yeah. a, with a real name next to them saying, this is why I love this book. That really helped. I mean, just going back to, you know, reading for a living, and I'm sure it's the same with watching film, which I want to ask you about. It's almost like you just know it when you read it and that mm. becomes the joy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you ever stop watching movies, but I stop reading proposals or I stop reading books if I just know it's not appropriate for our imprint or what, whatever the purpose might be. But then when there's that spark of reading something that you know is alive and could be really important, that's the most exciting part of, of my job. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so many things came up there. Like, so one of the highlights of my summer was going to New York City and spending two weeks there and seeing you in person, which we hadn't done in a while because you're in New York and I'm in LA. And going, because I lived there for so long, to my couple of my favorite bookstores, which were the Center for Fiction in downtown Brooklyn. I also made it to, I went to a couple other bookstores, but I used to, when I worked in downtown Brooklyn, I used to go to the Center for Fiction like quite a lot. And it's extremely hard for me 
to not buy a book when I go into a bookstore. Like that's just, that's what, that's what you're supposed to do. But the going to the recommendation section and just being like, looking at everything that's there, it is really powerful. You're like, oh, you know, Henry, the bookseller, or the, the like loves whatever book. And it, it really makes you want to read. And there's so much out there that I find myself teetering between I want to read classic stuff. I have shelves and shelves and shelves of books that I've never read. But also, I went to Vroman's this summer for a book reading by a writer named S.A. Crosby who wrote a book called All the Sinners Bleed, which is like a Southern noir. And he was there and I chatted with him and he signed the book. And I was like, I have to, uh, this, the, the author signed this book and handed it to me, you know? So it's like, I really want to read that, but I, I tend to not necessarily like look to new fiction. I tend to look backwards to fiction and look to new nonfiction to read. And as to your point of like, men reading more nonfiction. I, I, I will tell you this. M- my dad only read nonfiction. He didn't read fiction. And I, as a kid, loved... I, I kind of was like, oh, nonfiction, that's boring. And I asked him once, like, why do you read nonfiction? And his answer was like, I don't feel... Or why do you only read fiction? Excuse me. And his answer was like, I only have so much time and I only want to read things that really happened. Which is so interesting. So that is, that is nonfiction. Yeah. 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 I think that's the world now. We're so pulled in so many directions and time is your most valuable, the most, the most valuable thing you have to give to people or to hobbies or books. And for all of us, we decide what kind of experience we want. And that's what's so wonderful about books is that you can decide the next one is a nonfiction book about food, which leads right. me to another theme of Ooh, so good. many books I'm being drawn to. Nice Good transition. transition. I loved it. I loved it. Um, oh, wait, can I interrupt one thing I forgot yes. to say? As far as putting down, not finishing a book or not finishing a movie, I really struggle with not finishing things. Like, I was watching something this week. I will not name it. Well, I will. It's a movie from the 80s called Code of Silence, which is a sort of detective action movie that's set in Chicago. And uh, it's a Chuck Norris movie, and everything about the movie is good except for Chuck Norris. He's not good in the movie. He's a terrible actor. And I just, I was like, I might finish this because I don't generally watch movies in one sitting anymore because I am an overtired parent of two children, so I fall asleep. So it's rare for me not, it movie has to be pretty bad for me to not finish it because I try to enjoy everything. So yeah, I, I, and with books, I generally try to finish them. With TV shows, I will stop the second it doesn't work anymore because I just don't care. Well, then I have another question for you. So how good is a movie that you will see it twice or more than twice? How often does that Because I know you happen? do that. I do it. I don't do it much. I will... Okay, well, I think you're t- speaking specifically about one movie, which I have seen twice this summer and I'm seeing for a third time next week. That film is... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, it's Oppenheimer, the Christopher Nolan bi- a biopic meets uh, atomic bomb film. You know, I have a really interesting relationship to his movies. Memento came out when I was 19 and blew my mind. And I've been ride or die ever since. Now, when I say ride or die, I don't mean like I think every movie that he makes is like a masterpiece and and incredible. I mean it more that like I have half my life have been watching his movies and they fascinate me and they sometimes kind of they're provocative sometimes and I don't think everything works, but I'm drawn to them because I admire the ambition and the spectacle. And so in the case of Oppenheimer, I saw it opening night in at the local multiplex here in Burbank in 70 millimeter. And I was like, that was, that was good. But I also went at nine o'clock on a, and so it ended at midnight. And I already had bought tickets to see it at the city walk in IMAX 70 millimeter with a, with what's called the 15 perf, which is the way you're supposed to see it. It's, it's the way he filmed it. 
And there's only 30 IMAXs in the entire country that can show it that way. And one of them is 10 minutes from my house, which is why I like to live in L.A. So I went and saw it and I would you've seen it, right? Yes. What did you think? I thought it was fascinating and Mm -hmm. I was riveted from the moment it started and revolted and I thought it was really interesting how they there wasn't this moral judgment that was placed on these characters but obviously there there was in many ways but the light of hand that way I enjoyed it very very much yeah, it's very adult in that way. And I will just tell you that if you're a film person, the difference between the movie at like in the way that I saw it the first time and the second time, it is almost a different movie because the IMAX 70 millimeter print is, I've never seen anything like it beyond whether like you like the movie or whatever. It is like, I mean, the IMAX in New York close to you is 11 stories tall. It is a massive screen meant for showing nature documentaries, and that's historically what IMAX is for. What Nolan has done is turned a character drama, which essentially this is. I mean, with the exception of the bomb sequence, which is amazing, you know, that's what you think would be an IMAX. But the movie throughout cuts between IMAX and standard standard view throughout. So there'll be a shot of Oppenheimer and then it will cut to the flashback of Robert Downey Jr. And Robert Downey Jr. will be massive. And so all of a sudden it takes on this like scale and scope that is so emotional because of the size of the frame. And it might just be like Oppenheimer looking at the droplets of water or whatever the case might be. Like it's truly a whole other movie in my point of view. And I, when it ended in the IMAX 70 millimeter, I was like, this is one of the most astonishing movie going experiences I've ever had. There's only really one person who can command the budget and the scope to do something. Well, that's not true. There's only one person to really choosing to do it this way. And so I was like, I have to go again. And like, there are people, Bill Gayabiri, who's a friend of mine and a critic at Vulture, has seen the movie seven times. Now, he's seen it seven times because he's been writing about it all summer. But his point of view on it is like, there's, you can only really see this movie the way it was meant to be seen for the period of time that it's in the IMAX thing. And so it's kind of like, the joke with my wife is she's like, how many times are you going to see Oppenheimer? And I'm like, well, it's kind of like my era's tour. So if you're going to Taylor Swift, I'm going to see this movie multiple times because it it's at a time when so much of movie culture is like small screen and people are like whatever watching on their phones the fact that I have to carve out three hours of the day usually when my kids are in school and like go sit in a movie theater and have this experience is like the closest I get to like church I am not a church going person but the scope of it is just like incredible and it's it really feels like a different movie than it just does in a standard format I have to go. I maybe haven't been reading enough reviews about it that stress that point, that there's a way to see this in the cinema. Yeah, and I'm just a little obsessive about his work. You know, even I I really like it. I read read this book about him called The Nolan Variations in the lead up to this. I rewatched some stuff. Like, I really invested time in... Because I kind of expected this movie to either be like his triumph or in some ways I was like, if this doesn't work, like, man, like this is a big, big project, you know, that gives him a different kind of potential legitimacy in terms of how he's viewed. And look, Christopher Nolan doesn't need like, doesn't need to be loved. But so I was really excited and I, I thought it was very good the first time. And the second time I was like, is this the best movie he's ever made? It, 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 I don't, it's not my favorite, but it might be the best movie he's, it's certainly like a five star achievement and, and really works better as a film the second time. Can you rattle off some of his other movies for people sure. to put this in context in case they I don't think I can probably rattle off that? all of them. So Memento, Insomnia. Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Magician Movie with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, 
Tenet, which is a movie I love and nobody nobody appreciates, but I think is amazing. And Oppenheimer. I don't think I forgot one in there. I don't. I'm not like necessarily a guy who can rattle off everyone's Isn't, filmography. Did he but... do Gallipoli or not Gallipoli? No, that's Peter the, Weir. That was Peter no, Weir. The, the war one. The other one. Oh, Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Yes, I forgot Dunkirk, which is also. I got, I... Got the chink Great movie. in your armor. You did. And that's funny because that's the one I chose to, one of the, that's one of the ones I chose to rewatch to prep for this because they have some thematic and uh, not even wait, thematic, I suppose, but they both take place during World War II. So that was one that I definitely chose to revisit and is a very, very good movie. But yeah, this is kind of like his most experimental tendencies as a storyteller mixed with like this classic big theme of World War II and the bomb and quote unquote great men of history. And to your point, I don't think the movie considers Oppenheimer a quote great man of history. It's just kind of one way to describe what the movie is doing. Yeah, and I, I think I thought it was a real achievement and the platonic ideal of a movie going experience in 2023. Like I have two movie going experiences. One is I go by myself to these big epics or these movies I want to see. And the other is like last week I took my daughter to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was a blast, but it's a very, very different movie going experience than going to the IMAX by myself on a Friday morning. <laughs> I remember hugely being impacted by the Teenage Mutant Ninja movies when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah, they're hugely important. I'd love to go back. I just remember Splinter. They hold up really well. I love that original 1990. It's dark and weird. She enjoyed the new one. She kept talking about how cute the Ninja Turtles were when they were babies, which is about her speed right now. She likes cute <laughs> little. She's like, oh, they're so cute. And Splinter's pretty cute in this. And Splinter is voiced by Jackie Chan, which is really nice. It's like oh, wow. cool to hear him. So yeah, because anyway. I remember them being in the sewer system and splint that was really dark mm -hmm. what they were mm -hmm. up against which so many films of that era new york city was a dark place i guess you know it was not the city we live in that we feel is pretty safe and clean even though that's kind of gone backwards a bit in the last few years <laughs> i don't when I was there, it felt like the same place. I mean, I haven't, but when, you know, I left in 2019 and being there in 2023, I was like, this largely feels like the same place to me, but I don't live there day in, day out, you know? But yeah, it is a dark, they're dark movies. I would not show my five-year-old daughter the 1990 Teenage Ninja Turtles for a couple more years. I was seven when I saw it because I remember seeing it in the movie theater or eight. So Yeah, I think I would have been about maybe nine or 10 then. Movies are were, are dark. We're darker. Kids' movies were darker then, and in some ways, I think more interesting. I'm a big proponent of showing my daughter things that are like a little scary, like a little outside of her comfort zone, because I think I was shown stuff like that as a kid, and I I think it sort of got me interested in art in a way that maybe I wouldn't if I was just so much of kids' TVs now. I know we're off track here. This is dad stuff, but so much of kids' TV now is like disposable crap that when I have a chance to show her something like the wizard of Oz or a Miyazaki movie. I'm like, this is, this, this is what I want you to be seeing because you watch Netflix cartoons the rest of the time. I'm just, well, I'm just, now that we're on TV, I was just thinking when I grew up in Australia, I would be the kid on Sunday afternoons watching the like classic movies Mm -hmm. You know, like the Elvis ones with, oh, who's the fabulous actress? I love Gidget. Uh, oh, Sally Field. Sally Field. When yep. she was yeah. Gidget. And then there was like Gidget meets Elvis, all the old classic movies that, that were yeah. so PG, but yet still adult themed. There was so no PG-13 then. You couldn't, there, oh, was, you, there was only PG and R. So it was like, it wasn't until like 1984 or five or something like that, that they were like, we need a new intermediate rating. Yeah, I miss just linear TV showing stuff that was inappropriate for me to watch, but I watched it anyway as a kid. The only thing I got really spooked by was seeing Silence of the Lambs at a birthday party. What? How was, old were you? I can't, I've blocked it out. I think I maybe... 10 you know at a sleepover and it was terrifying and I mm. 
you had to recover for a week oh of nightmares God. and you know it then meant that my mother had to call up the other the mother who'd hosted the party my friend's mom it was a whole oh, thing. drama drama yeah. i was really scared speaking of topical william friedkin the great film director who just passed away i saw the exorcist at far too young of an age and that movie really like it still upsets me as a very 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 lapsed catholic i still have this like devil fear kind of thing and and uh, that movie just i find i mean maybe now it's like as an older person it's just seeing a child in danger is what upsets me about it maybe it's not the spooky stuff but making a sweet girl the literal antichrist is like pretty powerful still I can't remember when I saw that, but it was definitely not when it was terrifying or impactful in that way. We went on a long tangent, and you were supposed to talk about food, which is yeah. fine. I'm glad we did it, but That's I want to get back to your the the your your food inspired books and oh yeah, what you've been thinking so, about. I'm always now thinking about food, always, and who is learning? Yeah. I'm learning a lot more about wine because my partner and I are growing grapes to make our own wine. And we just bottled wow. last week <gasps> the wine that we harvested from last year, which was our first year doing this. Um, Congratulations. That feels like a very big deal. It is a huge deal. And it was such fun. So I was like on the factory line, essentially. So... <laughs> I'm it's picturing quite you an as extraordinary. Lucy. I love Lucy crushing the grapes with your feet. I just that's I saw sort of I, the image. We did that. We did oh, that. That's but that was last year. This time last year. So it'll be harvest time soon, usually sometime in September. Could be as late as October, but it all kind of is weather dependent. So because of that, I'm reading a book that came out a few years ago and it's called Cork Dork by Bianca Bosca. <laughs> And it was name. a, you know, New York Times bestseller. And I'll just read you the, the subtitle because it gives you a sense. A wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. So she mm. was a tech reporter and decided to kind of immerse herself in the world of sommeliers. Now, that is a word I can never say correctly. I can't say so it. I'm, I'm not even going to try. I'm still butchering it. So please forgive me. I get sommelier? Is it sommelier? I'm trying. Sommelier. She actually, in the beginning of the book, she gives you, you know, the phonetic way to say it. So I'm just trying to look it up for everyone. But even then, I find, oh, here we go. Sommelier. Sommelier. That's kind of what I, is that what it's sommelier? Woof, that's a tough one. Yeah, I always do this little Ellie in there, you, but it's You need to learn sommelier. to say it if you're doing wine stuff, if you're selling wine. I, though. I really, really do. How many bottles so, of wine have you bottled? Oh my gosh, so it will have been about 500 cases. So Whoa. everyone on this podcast is going to hear once it's ready to sell and and get out to the world, I will be peddling our wine. But it's really, really good. It's a rosé, right? So we have a couple. We have a sparkling pet nat, which is a natural sparkling that's made from Merlot grapes. So it's this gorgeous pale pink, kind of wow. cloudy pale pink because it's unfiltered. All the fermentation and everything kind of happens. A lot happens in the bottle. With champagne, they disgorge it, which means they let some out and ah. add more sugars. But with a pet nat, it's natural, natural kind of the process. So that we have that. We grow Cab Franc and Merlot grapes. So we have a, a Merlot, a Cab Franc, and then a Carbonic Merlot, which is kind of a cool experimental way to again just see what happens with the grapes if you leave them to yeah. kind of bubble and infuse and do their stuff in a in a different way kind and of a then, scientist you're oh, kind of a scientist it's like so scientific right oh it's brilliant and you know we have a winemaker and i say that you know our the winemaker that is kind enough to lend us his expertise as his side project is a guy called Brian 
sorry, is a great man called Byron Elmendorf, and he's the winemaker at Macari Vineyards on the North Fork, and he just got named, you know, best winemaker on the North Fork, which is very wow. exciting. So he, you know, has a real point of view. We have a point of view about the kind of wines we like, and then we do it together. But Byron is the one who is the man in the science lab almost or making these decisions about when is the right time to right. move wine from one you know, vessel to the other, when it's time to bottle, all this really, really cool stuff. That is really um, cool. So that has completely influenced my my reading. Do you think you just walk around thinking about wine a lot now? Is that like a well, thing for you? The thing is, because I am pregnant, I cannot drink or taste oh, right. you can't. the wine very much. I did have spoiler alert for the podcast. You didn't. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I did. I did have some sips to taste, but mm -hmm. you know, I cannot enjoy wine with abandon at the moment. But understandable that that's both understandable and very responsible of you as a as a as a person who's going to have a baby congratulations by the way i've said i mean i knew this before but i'll just say it officially on the air thank so is anthony thank doing you. the tasting for you is he is he really <laughs> stepping up of course yeah <laughs> and i had to tell him because you're really on a factory line and mm -hmm. it's really fast like once these things get started you know, the wine's coming into the bottles, into these machines, the corks are happening, then they get labeled and then they come out and you pack them straight into boxes. It's, and it can get quite overwhelming if one part of this chain messes up. And, you know, the whole crew of guys, they happen to be guys, although many, you know, there are many women in the industry, but they all have, a, they all drink some of the wine before they get started. You know, even if it's 9 a.m., yeah. just to taste what's really going in the bottle. So I had to say, hey, hey, watch out. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like if I worked in like wine, beer, or one of these industries, like, you know, you see these guys who are brewers at their cool breweries and they're drinking beer at 9 a.m. because it's like a professional kind of interest. And like, I, I barely drink beer or wine anymore because I get very sleepy when I drink it. But I just can't imagine having like a alcoholic beverage before five o'clock anymore. Cause I just like, if I have a drink at one at like three o'clock, I'm like, you know, when you have a kid and you go to birthday parties, you'll find that there are some parents that are like sparkling seltzers at the kids' birthday parties. And then there are the cool ones who are like, there's beer in the other cooler, wine in the other cooler. And you're like, yeah, like we're doing it. And you have one beer and then you get home from the party at 3.15 and you're like, like I've literally just come home and fallen asleep after like a two beer birthday party or something like that. It'll, it happens. I think you have to work up your daytime tolerance. I do. I have no daytime tolerance. But you know what? I'm 40. It's okay not to have... Daytime tolerance is my feeling on that, at least. <laughs> but also I fall asleep at night very early, so I don't have a window of, of tolerance anymore at all. Well, then that's a question. How and when do you find time to read if you're a sleepy parent? Well, so I will say that I think my reading has decreased a lot. You know, part of the problem is the phone being accessible and looking at articles that I half read on my phone. But what I've started to do, you know, I have an eight month old who finally eh, is a pretty good sleeper. So he's in bed by 637 these days. And my daughter's asleep by 8, 815. And that hasn't always been true because of the challenges of this. So often I will get into bed at like 10 and read you know, for 15 or 20 minutes or till I start to fall asleep. And, and that really is so much better than... I don't even bring my phone into the bedroom anymore. I have two alarm clocks in the form of children running into my room or, or screeching from the next room over. So that that is definitely my reading time. Though I will say I'm reading this Last Action Heroes book for the podcast. And when this will publish a few weeks later, but the we're recording this on the Thursday after we got hit by a tropical storm, Tropical Storm Hillary, 
which was Sunday and was at least where we are only ended up being rain. We didn't get any wind, but we were homebound for the whole day. And my son still naps. My daughter doesn't. She's five. He's eight months. So we would put him down. And and if we were lucky enough and she would distract herself, she's an oldest child. So she has a tendency to like want our attention all the time because she's used to it. She's had it for a long time. So if we could get her either into a groove of playing something she wanted to play, or if we had to be like, you want to watch one episode of TV, we would read our books. And so I read for a huge chunk of the day on Sunday. And I just have to say that like a lazy Sunday of reading is so rare for me now and so pleasurable that like it was really nice to to read. I think I read 200 pages on Sunday. And uh, also it's nice to be in a book that you're just devouring, right? You know, speaking of like sometimes literature, it can be hard to be like, you know, especially if it's thoughtful and interesting, like I imagine The Bell by Iris Murdoch is, it can be hard to really dig in and just get up totally absorbed. And with this kind of like light, really enjoyable nonfiction, Last Action Heroes, I just was destroying the book. I mean, I just was got, you know, was reading, 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 and just like, so enjoy and so pleasurable to just have a book that feels good to read. Like reading that feels good, which is a big thing of this podcast, is what lights me up and I don't do it enough. I also think it's so good for our brains to have Mm -hmm. though that prolonged concentration but mixed with pleasure. It doesn't happen enough in life anymore, you know? Yeah. It's like a snow day, you know, and all of a sudden you're, you're homebound and you think, oh, well, what do I do? And to God, decide so nice. not to watch television, I can't watch TV in the day. It just really gives me the creeps. So Me too. Why And is I'd rather that? really read anyway. But Why um, does that, why is it so depressing to watch TV during the day? I think it, or, I mean, to me, it just says that there's kind of been a breakdown in mm. um, I don't organization. Know, routine or although there is nothing better than watching a movie on a Sunday afternoon as I said when it's snowing or you know but I think I will uh, my I don't like 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 you know my daughter when she's home from school earlier she'll be like can I watch tv in the middle of the afternoon and like of course we'll let her if we have to work or whatever but we're not like especially work day tv people like we don't except for like if something extraordinary is happening in the world and the tv's on but like you know usually we're just working all day and I will occasionally have YouTube on in the background or whatever, but I will say that the two times I really enjoy watching things that's not the evening time is sometimes if my daughter and my wife are out of the house in the middle of the day on a Saturday and the baby's napping, I will be like, this is my chance to watch that like 90 minute gritty independent movie that I've wanted to see or like, and I will have be able to concentrate. Right. Yeah, Yeah, totally. It's important. And Sunday afternoon movie time where we make popcorn and we get my daughter to actually commit to a night. Like Wizard of Oz, she like kind of blew her mind. You know, those those kinds of experiences are nice. But I'm pretty anti like TV on a Tuesday afternoon makes me sad. I don't know why. Yeah. Maybe it's because like daytime TV, which I don't really watch. But like the whole idea of that is like if you watch daytime TV in the middle of the day in America. It just feels like, like you've let something go in a way. Yeah. You could be using the day more productively. Yeah. When I grew up, like what was on in the day was like the Ricky Lake, then the Donahue, then the Oprah. (laughs) Yeah. The sort of self-help weirdness. I watched a lot of TV as a kid. Did you have the prices right in Australia? Of course. Okay. But we had our Aussie version. Oh, really? Okay. What was it called? Was it the Price is Right? right. Aussie? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't have Bob Barker. You had like Australian Bob Barker, whoever that happened to be. Yeah, I can't remember who it was. Now, Liam, (laughs) we have to wrap this up. I know. Well, this is what happens, guys. This is why we just talk and This is why we have to put time limits because we could just yap and then we realize that we've not got to the work stuff. Well, this is work stuff. This is, this is. But is there – look – you also have such good TV and film recommendations. Can you just like give us a a quick hit list of just some things that sure. are worth our time? 
What have I been watching lately? Well, right now I think I'm between shows. I recently watched, and I should say this is a Sugar 23 client, but Steven Soderbergh's series Full Circle on HBO Max, which is a pretty amazing six, five or six episode series about a kidnapping of a boy, of a, of a rich boy in Manhattan, but also the story of who kidnapped him. It is based on a Japanese film called High and Low, from 1956, directed by Akira Kurosawa, which I only bring up because it is maybe one of my top five films of all time. It's an absolutely astonishing police procedural. Would you recommend watching that that film first? No, I mean I think what's interesting about that what Soderbergh and his right the, the writer Ed Solomon have chosen to do, High and Low was sort of about the have and have-nots and the animosity between them in post-World War II Japan. And I think that this film is about that in a much more globalized sense. Now, I, that makes it sounds like it's very serious, but it's it's pretty like... Steven Soderbergh has found a way to make frothy, entertaining genre films that also have a little undercurrent of reality in them. And this is just a good watch. And specifically, the best thing I think about it is Claire Danes is always wonderful as like a neurotic... New Yorker. She's sort of made a meal out of that between this and uh, the Fleischman is in trouble show that she did earlier this year. And uh, an actress I love, Zazie Beetz, who has been in a million things, but plays like a prickly post post office inspector detective in this. And she's very quote unquote unlikable and she really commits to it. And I, it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I want the Columbo version of this. Like I want this woman to do a week in week out detective show, which would be very different from full circle. I think that that is that is definitely something lately to watch, and it's on Max, not HBO Max, but Max. That sounds amazing, and I've been threatening to watch it, and I will. Okay, I have it. one one book to share, and I will then I will sign off. And the thing that's next up for me is a nonfiction book called National Dish. And it's by the well-known food writer Anya von Bremsen. And she explores six of the world's most fascinating and iconic culinary cultures. So she goes to France, Italy, Japan, Spain, Mexico, and Turkey. So it's almost like if you were a foodie, it's like an eat, pray, love of examining these places and their foods and the the stories around them. But she... Mm -hmm is a really funny woman. She's from the Soviet Union and has a really amazing memoir called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. And she's written a lot since the war with Ukraine to kind of bring context, A, to their national dishes and and support the people of the Ukraine. So I'm going to leave everyone with that. And I'm sure people are going to want you back again, maybe for a full episode. This is a full episode. We talked for 15 minutes. This is as full as it can. For fall. Oh, fall. I heard full episode. The autumn. Yeah, I'd love, I'll come on and talk about flannels and my favorite sad dad music. That would be, but I live in Southern California. So like, sadly seasonal. Maybe we should do that so you can tell me what's happening in New York. Because I am a East Coast kid in a in a west to coast tell you about the cable nets now. and the the scarves uh, you could be well the nice thing is you can layer in southern california in like october november december but the nice you know also by like 1 p.m you're like oh i can take all these i don't know if you can off. turtleneck though i'm not a turtleneck guy i have a very very sensitive i'm a big flannel guy but i hate turtlenecks not not my he has a sensitive neck everyone i have a very sensitive neck because because i'm just a sensitive boy this was so fun angela thank you liam that's it (laughs) that's it (laughs) any parting words such a weird tone hey wait can i ask you a question can i ask you a question before we wrap up that you've i don't think you've ever been asked this on the podcast but maybe i'm wrong what lights you up lately (gasps) angela oh my god what lights me up Truly, I know I spoke about the wine bottling, but being with a crew of people who are passionate about something and being in a team, like the day I got to be part of that team and we all had our roles and things like shit was going to go really badly if everyone didn't concentrate and 
get mm-hmm. it together. And there was something so fun about that experience. Um, you know, we had a a schedule to get through and like Byron's a dad and he needed to go at 3.30 to like pick up his kid. But mm. it meant we had to bottle all this wine and that really lit me up. Also, there's something fabulous about concentrating on a task like that's physical and I found that if I let my mind wander I would make a mistake Mm. collecting all these bottles so it was a really good out of your body experience yeah in focus like being focused being part of a team and having a beautiful product to look at at the end of it and feeling a sense of accomplishment that really lit me up now we just have to now there's a new stage to people drinking this wine and enjoying it. So that's I, that's for the moment. That's a great answer. I can't wait to try the wine when it when it is available to the world. Where, where well, I guess you'll tell us all about that when that when I that will happens. tell you all about it. it but it's do you have a name Old, for it yet? Yeah, it's called Old Sound Vineyard, and mm. we live on Old Sound Road in Mattatuck, where our you know, vineyard is and these acres mm-hmm. of grapes. Vineyard sounds very grandiose. It's a few acres of grapes, which is very different than what's out on the North Fork, but we've made it our own. Well, that's lovely. I makes me want to come back. It makes me want to be back in New York and the We'll East have Coast. a wedding eventually, a big party. On the North out Fork? Here. Yeah, out here. Very cool. So you can visit okay. Old Sound. I'd love to. I'd love to. All right. I'm now. Now we have to stop because this is just ridiculous. Okay. Bye, thanks, everyone. everybody. Bye. Boop. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar Twenty Three. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radovsky. Until next time, bye everyone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.